For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Pleasant Prairie is a village in Kenosha County along the southwestern shoreline of Lake Michigan. Close to the border of Illinois, the village is only an hour north of Chicago. The Pleasant Prairie area was the center of Native American activity in pre-pioneer Wisconsin and remnants of the Native American culture still remain. In the early 20th century, Pleasant Prairie was the site of a 190-acre DuPont blasting powder plant. On March 9, 1911, most of the town was destroyed by a massive explosion of 300 tons of dynamite and 105,000 kegs of blasting powder. Several hundred people were injured, three plant employees were killed, and one resident dropped dead of fright. Pleasant Prairie's very own History Museum opened in August 2020 by the Pleasant Prairie Historical Society, which is dedicated to preserving local history dating back to 1835. Now, top attractions include a premium outlets mall, a recreation complex called the Recplex by locals, and the Beef Jerky Experience. But in 1998, the town was once again devastated when one young mother withered before their eyes and died. Did a letter from the grave shed light on her death, or did it hide the truth? Julie Griffin was a lifelong resident of Kenosha. She grew up attending local schools and went about two hours north of Kenosha to attend college at the University of Wisconsin to enroll in its nursing program. While Julie was in college, she worked part-time at a local Sears department store when she met fellow student Mark Jensen in 1981. Kath, they actually graduated from the same high school. Julie was a year older than Mark, but they actually did not meet until they were working together at Sears. Mark graduated from college, but Julie did not. She was 26 years old when she and Mark married in 1984 at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Kenosha. Mark and Julie made their home in Pleasant Prairie and had two boys, David and Douglas. Mark worked as an investment banker for a financial company, and Julie worked part-time for the Port Authority in Chicago. She was very involved in her son's school and was a volunteer parent in her oldest son's third grade class. Now, beginning in late 1998, Mark became concerned about Julie's behavior. He confided to many friends and coworkers that she was severely depressed and couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, and she was losing a lot of weight. He had tried to get her to go see a doctor, but she refused and said she was fine. Now, finally, at the beginning of December, Julie finally made a doctor's appointment. She was miserable and distraught in a way her doctor had never seen before. So he gave her samples of the antidepressant Paxil and suggested she see a counselor. The next day, Kath, Mark went to see Julie's doctor and told him that she was not sleeping. So interestingly, and I think this is probably a, a sign of the times. Thank you. 
the doctor gave Mark a prescription for Julie for the sleeping aid Ambien and told Mark to taper off Julie's Paxil dosage. When Mark got home, Julie took the medicine, but was feeling a little dizzy, so she went to lie down in their bedroom. Mark got Julie some orange juice and left her to sleep. The next morning, which was Thursday, December 3rd, 1998, Julie could not get out of bed. So Mark took the boys to school so Julie could stay home and rest. After picking up the boys from school that afternoon, Mark took them home, and when he went to check on Julie, she had died. At about 4.30 that afternoon, Sergeant Dan Riley and Officer Laura Hoffman of the Pleasant Prairie Police Department arrived at the Jensen home. When they walked into the house, they found Mark in the kitchen trying to use the phone. He was visibly upset. And when Sergeant Riley asked Mark where Julie was, he pointed down the hallway. The sergeant entered the master bedroom and found Julie's body. She was lying in bed on her stomach with her face in the pillow. Pleasant Prairie homicide detective Paul Ratzberg arrived at the Jensen home and obtained consent to search. He was simply interested in conducting a thorough investigation. You know, it's interesting about the precise nature of this, because that's something we both read. I also read that Detective Ratzberg had only been a homicide detective for one year. So I think that's why he was being so thorough to make sure that he did everything correct in this investigation. I also think I read, although I'm not 100% sure, that he only had experience with one other homicide before this. Did you read that? I read the same thing. Okay. So I'm sure he was erring on the side of caution and whatever he was collecting. Absolutely. One of the items seized by Detective Ratzberg was the family's computer, and he sent it to the state crime lab. Pathologist Dr. Michael Chambliss performed the autopsy the following day, but was unable to determine the exact cause of death. However, he did believe it was likely to be the result of a suicide. Funeral services were held four days after Julie's death, and she was remembered as a loving wife, mother, and friend. Fast forward more than three years to March 2002. Mark Jensen was arrested and charged with first-degree homicide in the death of his wife, Julie. Although he was shocked, detectives had been slowly putting together the pieces of the puzzle for the past three years. He pleaded not guilty in June and was freed on bond. Trial was originally set eight months later in November of 2002. Now, as it turns out, Kath, in the weeks preceding her death, Julie was in contact with Pleasant Prairie Police Officer Ron Cosman. She had left two voicemails for Officer Cosman saying in the second voicemail message that she thought her husband was trying to kill her. Interestingly, Kath, she left this message on Officer Cosman's voicemail, despite his outgoing message that said he was out of the office on a hunting trip and would not check messages until his return. When Officer Cosman got back to work, he met with Julie about eight days before she died. She told him she had given a letter to one of her next door neighbors, Ted Voigt. It included photographs she had taken of her husband Mark's day planner. Julie had found a to-do list in his planner that included the word syringe and a list of different drugs. She also told Officer Cosman that if she were to be found dead, she did not commit suicide. Her husband should be their first suspect. So when her next door neighbors, Ted and Margaret Voigt, saw the ambulances and police at Julie's house on the day of her death, they went over to Detective Ratzberg and gave him the letter that Julie had given to Mr. Voigt. 
Inside of the envelope was a handwritten letter with Julie's signature and photographs of her husband's day planner. Julie's letter read, To Pleasant Prairie Police Department, Ron Cosman or Detective Ratzberg. I took this picture and am writing this on Saturday, November 21st, 1998 at 7 a.m. This list was in my husband's business daily planner, not meant for me to see. I don't know what it means, but if anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. Our relationship has deteriorated to the polite superficial. I know he's never forgiven me for the brief affair I had with that creep seven years ago. Mark lives for work and the kids. He's an avid surfer of the internet. Anyway, I do not smoke or drink. My mother was an alcoholic, so I limit my drinking to one or two a week. Mark wants me to drink more with him in the evenings. I don't. I would never take my life because of my kids. They are everything to me. I regularly take Tylenol and multivitamins, occasionally take over-the-counter stuff for colds, Zantac, or Imodium, have one prescription for migraine tablets, which Mark uses more than I. I pray I'm wrong and nothing happens, but I am suspicious of Mark's behaviors and fear for my early demise. However, I will not leave David and Douglas. My life's greatest love, accomplishment, and wish are my three Ds. Daddy, with Mark's name in parentheses, David and Douglas. Her neighbor, Mr. Voigt, also told police that four days before her death, he saw Julie and she said she thought her husband was putting poison in her food or drink and she did not eat all weekend. He said Julie was shaking and crying and was in bad shape. Julie also told Mr. Voigt at that time that Mark would pull up sites on the internet about poisoning and he would leave them on the computer screen for her to see. According to the criminal complaint against Mark, Julie told a variety of trusted people that her marriage was in the toilet, that she would be seeking a divorce from her husband, and that she was concerned her husband was going to try to kill her, possibly with poison. She said if anything were to happen, it would not be suicide, and they should suspect Mark in the event of her death. On the day before Thanksgiving in 1998, eight days before she died, Julie was serving as a volunteer parent in her son's third grade class. The teacher, Teresa DeFazio, was a close friend of Julie's. Ms. DeFazio told the police about a conversation they had that day. She said Julie told her she was afraid Mark was going to kill her. When Ms. DeFazio asked why she thought such a serious thing was going to happen, Julie said she found a paper in her husband's stuff of a list of things to buy. She said it listed syringes and the names of various drugs. She then said Julie told her that Mark might try to kill her with a drug overdose and make it look like a suicide. Ms. DeFazio also told the police during a separate conversation, Julie mentioned that it bothered her that every time she walked into the room when her husband was on the computer, he quickly turned it off or covered the screen. And so, Kath, one time she asked him, like, why do you do that? Why don't you just like, what does it matter if I see your computer screen? And he's like, no, 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 I I just finished my work. It's not a big deal. I'm, I'm just finished. As we mentioned, after Julie died, police seized the Jensen's computer and sent it to the state crime lab. In addition to finding searches for suicide and poisoning, computer evidence technicians discovered Mark had a girlfriend, a woman named Kelly. As one would. Exactly. (laughs) Investigators found emails between Mark and Kelly, some of them very personal and intimate, that began three months before Julie died. Kath, here's also what was interesting. So Kelly was married as well. 
she had only been married to her husband for one month before she began the affair. Maybe she was a very easily bored woman. (laughs) It sounds like it. Now, probably not surprisingly to the computer techs, they found porn. A lot of porn. More specifically, a collection of pictures of penises. But these were not Julie's dick pics. How do we know this? Well, there's a couple of reasons why we know this. And by the way, they belonged to Mark. The pictures or the penises in the photos? It's not him. Okay, like various... Various sizes, races. Got it. He was a connoisseur of private parts. (laughs) (laughs) Now, detectives discovered that in 1991, seven years after Julie and Mark were married, she had a two-day affair with another man. From that point on... Mark became obsessed with what other men's penises looked like. A forensic computer examiner said he analyzed Mark Jensen's computer and found numerous files containing dick pics that were categorized by size and favorites. He was a junk expert. (laughs) (laughs) He was indeed. Okay, this might not be the appropriate time to bring this up, but Kath, you saw the picture of Mark back when he was arrested? Yes. Does he not look like just a slightly off version of Kevin Bacon? Oh, my God. He totally does. He does. He was kind of like, you know, you see celebrities and their siblings. Yeah. And the celebrities are always much better looking. Right. <laughs> Mark could have been Kevin Bacon's brother. He, he totally could have. <laughs> but instead of six degrees of separation, it's now six inches. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing, Kathy, is that after Julie had ended her affair seven years ago, For six years after that, they were harassed with phone calls, dick pics left on their cars and at times in their home, Mm -hmm. which is super scary. I read that, Kath, but I also read they got the police involved. They did get the police involved. And every time the police tried to set a trap on the phone because they were getting all these phone calls and what have you, the calls all stopped. So they would take the device off to try and get the phone number and they would start up again. Police at the time thought Mark might be involved with leaving the pictures and making the phone calls. Simply because of the timing of whenever they tried to trap the guy, it stopped. Exactly. And because of how angry he had been about the affair. Mm. So now this information is coming to light about all these pictures on the computer. And detectives realized this probably proved Mark was the guilty party. Mm -hmm. According to records recovered from Mark's hard drive. And no, that's not a euphemism. He began researching methods of poisoning in October of 1998, two months before his wife's death, when he looked at a site entitled Botulism in Low Acid Canned Foods. That's awfully specific. Very specific. So over the next six weeks, he looked up numerous sites, including research on physician-assisted suicide. So three weeks before Julie died, he then began researching ethylene glycol poisoning, including the stages and toxic effects. Ethylene glycol is commonly known as antifreeze. Forensic toxicology reports showed that Julie died as a result of ethylene glycol poisoning. Tests conducted on her stomach contents, kidneys, blood, and urine showed that she had received at least two toxic doses, with the final dose being administered shortly before her death. The antifreeze poisoning would have left her unconscious or at least too weak to move or get out of bed herself. On the day of her death, despite a very thorough search, the police found no traces of antifreeze anywhere in the Jensen bedroom, residence, or garage. The state also consulted with Dr. Christopher Long, the director at St. Louis University Forensic Toxicology. He concluded that ethylene glycol was the cause of Julie's death and there was no other reasonable explanation. 
now it's going to get a little confusing because there were a ton of pretrial motions that were filed by the public defenders who were representing Mark. Now, we're only going to get into a couple of them, and chief among them were the motions challenging the admissibility of the letter Julie left for police from the grave and the oral statements she made to the neighbor, Mr. Voigt, Officer Cosman, as well as her son's teacher, Ms. DeFazio, that her husband was trying to kill her. The court evaluated each of Julie's disputed statements independently to determine if they were admissible in court or not, and ruled that Julie's in-person statements and her letter could be admitted into evidence. Obviously, with all of these pretrial motions, the trial has been continued from its original November 2002 date. And in May of 2004, so two years after he was arrested, Mark Jensen made a motion for reconsideration because a new precedent for the admissibility of such statements had come down from the U.S. Supreme Court. So just really quickly, there's two issues here when you're trying to admit a statement. Number one is hearsay. And remember, hearsay is repeating something somebody else says when they're not on the witness stand. And the other thing is the Sixth Amendment right to confront your accusers. And so there was these sort of competing interests at play here. And of course, because the statements that were made to these three people, and of course, what was written in the letter was highly, highly probative of Julie's thoughts. They were very contentious fights over the evidence. After the new precedent, the judge then changed his mind and determined that Julie's letter could not be admitted into evidence. However, the judge did allow the statements Julie made to Officer Cosman and Ms. DeFazio and her next door neighbor, Mr. Voigt. So, Kath, now the prosecution's pissed because originally the judge was going to admit this very, very important letter and now he's not. And the defense is pissed because these three people get to come to the stand and testify. So the prosecution appeals and the defense cross appeals. During the course of the appeal, there was a lot of conversation about the hearsay exception. So Wisconsin has an exception to the hearsay rule, which is called forfeiture by wrongdoing. If I am responsible for somebody not being present in court, for example, I may have killed them or I may have like asked them to leave the country or whatever. If I'm responsible for somebody not being present in court, I have no right to object when the opposing party tries to introduce a hearsay statement by them. So anyway, this was a big hullabaloo conversation during arguments at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So what the justices say is like, hey, look, you guys are talking about this hearsay exception with all the stuff you want to admit, but you haven't even proven it applies. You have to show that Mark Jensen is responsible for his wife not being present at trial. And if that's the case, maybe her statements come in. So he sends it back down to the trial court. They have a 10 day evidentiary hearing and the judge is like, hey, You've given me sufficient evidence to prove that Mark Jensen was the cause of Julie not being here. And therefore, the letter gets to be admitted into evidence, along with all the other statements made by these witnesses. And now I just want to say all of you need to use the word hullabaloo in a sentence today. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's what the court wrote. I'm sick of this hullabaloo. (laughs) With that accent, too. But literally, like, Kathy, how many years was this appeal process? Like for freaking ever. Ridiculous. Years and years and years. Trial finally began in January of 2008, more than nine years after Julie Jensen died and five and a half years after her husband Mark was charged with her murder. The state introduced evidence concerning Julie's statements and actions in the days, weeks and months before her death and all the statements she made accusing Mark of killing her. The state also introduced evidence that Mark Jensen was having an affair at the time of Julie's death, which we talked about. But what we also found out is that this woman moved into the Jensen house two weeks after Julie's death 
and married Mark shortly before he was arrested in March of 2002. So how long were they dating before Julie died? Three months. Okay. So within a three and a half month time span, she leaves her husband of one month and moves in with Mark. Uh huh. That's a woman I would trust, by the way. If I were him, I'd trust her. <laughs> totally. He should spill his guts to her because right. I have no doubt she will lock that shit down. Exactly. <laughs> The primary prosecution theory was that Mark was still bitter about Julie's two-day affair seven years prior to her death and then used it to justify his own affair. It's sad to me that a relationship that started in Sears ended up so badly. It really is. <laughs> I used to love Sears. My mom would buy our uh, Easter dresses from Sears. Okay, I've got a story for you. My mom didn't buy our Easter dresses from there, but... How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the story. My mom and my sister and I were in Sears for some reason, and we were young. We were probably like seven and eight years old. And somehow my sister got separated from us. I could totally see that. <laughs> she was like, ooh, bright and shiny. Exactly. Wandering off. <laughs> exactly. So mom knows she's missing and we're looking for her in the store. And all of a sudden my mom hears an announcement over the speaker system in the store. Mrs. Smith, will you please come to customer service? Your daughter is here. For the record, <laughs> Smith is not my last name. <laughs> But my mom knew exactly who it was. That is so funny. Oh, my gosh. Like you heard the announcement, you knew. Exactly. Totally. It was like my mom turned, started heading to customer service. Right. It was all good. All right. We're going to get back to the story now. One of the prosecution's first witnesses to testify was the Jensen's next door neighbor, Ted Voigt. He testified to Julie giving him the letter and what she told him about her fear her husband was going to kill her. Mr. Voigt's wife, Margaret, also testified Mrs. Voigt cried on the stand and told the jury that her own husband had been mad at her for years because when Julie first gave Mr. Voigt the letter, Mrs. Voigt told him, we can keep this letter, pray nothing happens, but do not meddle in their business. He could have gone to the cops if he wanted to. He had no business being mad at his wife. Yeah, I agree with that. But she said it had been years and years that he was mad. He was mad at himself. See, that's what I'm thinking. He too. just didn't realize But how that. sad that the wife has been going through that and felt so upset by it that she did that in front of a jury. But it is crazy to me that Julie was basically spreading the word. Yeah. I mean, although she had been to the police... She did tell the police her suspicions, right. you know. But it's, you know, I look at it as one of those cases even about domestic violence, which is we can't help you unless he hurts you. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Right. Like that, that to me is the same thing. Like she's telling them all these things, but they can't do anything about it. Right. The only thing they could have done is dragged his butt in and been like, hey, this is what the situation is. We have an eye on you. Or knocked on his door. Nobody had a right to drag him in, actually. But you know what I mean? Anyway. Somebody could have talked to him and just been like, hey, in case you're thinking something stupid, we're watching you. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Mrs. Voigt testified to was that she saw Mark and his dad in the Jensen's driveway the day after Julie died, and they were smiling and happy. Mark was also seen by several people laughing during Julie's wake. You know, part of that is misleading, honestly, when little snippets like that get introduced at evidence. I mean, you know what I mean? You, you just don't you, know. You don't know. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. 
And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. According to an episode of Court TV's Judgment, the morning Julie died, her two boys, David and Douglas, pleaded with their father to take her to the hospital because she was having trouble breathing and couldn't even sit up to give them a hug goodbye before they went to school. Mark promised his sons that if their mother wasn't better by the time he got home from school, he would take her to the hospital. When the boys returned home from school that day, their mother had died. Eric Shore, a former classmate of Julie's oldest son, David, testified. Now, Kath, he would have been like, what, eight years old or something like that? He would have been eight when this happened, and then he would have been 18 at trial testifying, 17 or 18. Okay, so he testified that David told him that morning that his mom was sick but his dad would not take her to the hospital. Eric testified that David, his friend, demonstrated to him how bad his mother's breathing was, and Eric mimicked it in court. And it was like this, you know, like this very, very heavy labored breathing. Joseph Mangi, the principal at David Jensen's school, testified that he called the Jensen home the week Julie died. He told the jury Mark answered the phone and told him that Julie was asleep and that she was going to be sleeping for a very long time. And then he laughed. The turning point in the case was Ed Klug. Mr. Klug, who was a co-worker of Mark's, testified that they were at a conference before Julie's death, and they talked to each other about wanting to get rid of their wives. As one would. (laughs) My husband probably does. (laughs) 
Mr. Klug was referring to divorce, but testified that Mark told him if he really wanted to get rid of his wife, there were websites he could go to and learn how to poison her. You know, the Internet has just opened up so many possibilities. Yeah, you know, like this guy's a real friend offering that service. He really is. (laughs) The next two witnesses coming up are our favorite types of witnesses. Jailhouse snitches. The first was an inmate named David Thompson, who was in jail with Mark when Mark was first arrested. Thompson testified that Mark was bitching to him about a man named Ed Klug, who Mark was worried would be the one to ultimately bring him down and get him locked up. Mark said he really wished he could just get Klug to go away. And Thompson told the jury that he told Mark, I could possibly make that happen for you, but it would cost him money. Now, I'm actually assuming at this point that he's talking about killing Klug. I would assume so. Actually, he was not because he then testified that Mark said, well, what if Klug decided to talk at trial anyway? And Thompson replied, well, you have a plan B then. And plan B would be for Klug to go away permanently. But it'll cost you more. Do you think he was originally implying that I'll go scare him out of testifying and... Exactly. Threaten him, scare him, harm him, do something like that. And I actually got the feeling it wasn't Thompson who was going to do it because he was in jail. I'm guessing he was saying he could probably hook him up with the right people. Yeah, he had peeps. Like I'd call you. I'll go break some freaking fingers for you. Well, you have before. (laughs) (laughs) The first time is the hardest. (laughs) The second snitch was a man named Aaron Dillard, who met Jensen in jail as well, but they weren't cellmates. They were actually assigned to the same jail pod. And Dillard testified that when you get assigned to your new pod, everybody comes out and you just want to get to know each other and find out who the other person is. It was a weird social kind of situation. He He makes it sound like a fraternity. He totally did. Or like your freshman year in your dorms in college and you're all getting to know each other because you're all going to be sharing space. That's so funny. I I don't envision it to be like that. No, I don't either. (laughs) Because 30 girls sharing a bathroom. Talk about fights. Exactly. So Dillard testified that Mark told him his wife was depressed and had gone to the doctor and the doctor prescribed Paxil for her. This is the antidepressant we talked about earlier. Julie was all loopy and went to lie down. So Mark got her some orange juice. Aaron testified that Mark then told him he mixed the orange juice with antifreeze. Then when Mark got home from dropping his sons off at school and Julie was not dying fast enough, he rolled her over and sat on her back and pushed her face into the pillow. Now, Kath, he might have been telling the truth. And here's why. Dr. Mary Mainland, who was the medical examiner of Kenosha County, testified that Julie's death was a result of ethylene glycol poisoning with probable terminal asphyxia. The antifreeze amount in her system was not enough to kill her. So the smothering or suffocating was what killed her. Did she testify the antifreeze was not enough to kill her? She did. Oh, I didn't realize that. She said it actually takes copious amounts of antifreeze to kill somebody So much so that you wouldn't use it to commit suicide because you wouldn't be able to ingest that much in one sitting. Interesting. Yes. She also told the jury that she believed Aaron Dillard, snitch number two, was telling the truth about the asphyxiation. There were some things Aaron said during his testimony that had never been made public. So in her mind, the information could have only come from one person, Mark Jensen. So, Kathy, what's interesting then is Dr. Chambliss then came to the stand. Remember, he was the original pathologist who did the autopsy on Julie Jensen with an undetermined cause. Yes, he he was the one who thought it was likely suicide. Yes, initially thought was actually suicide because now as the years have gone by and he's looked for different things, they found ethylene glycol crystals in different organs and things like that. And that's when they knew there was an attempted poisoning. So Dr. Mainland, remember, she was the Kenosha County Medical Examiner. She had testified that one of the things not made public 
when Julie was discovered, she was lying on her left side. But, you know, usually when you lie on your left side, like to go to sleep or something, usually your arm is kind of tucked up under you. Right. In this case, her arm was behind her. So as if she'd been kind of moved more toward the bed, but just her torso. She also said there was blood pooled under the left side of her rib cage and her ribs on her right side were actually compressed and fractured as if a significant amount of force had been put on them like somebody sitting on her. The question was asked of Dr. Chambliss, the original pathologist, if there was anything he had noticed different about her nose. There was nothing in the original autopsy report written about it. However, on the stand at this point, Dr. Chambliss said that it was bent as if somebody had been holding her face down. Oh, that's so interesting. So it was not on the original autopsy report. Remember, first he said it was indeterminate, likely suicide. And then it was other pathologists who came in, found the poisoning and said ethylene glycol could be the only reason for her death. The defense presented the theory that Julie had actually committed vengeful suicide. Julie, depressed, committed suicide by poisoning herself, but had made it look as though her husband were her killer. The defense maintained that Julie was discouraging others from worrying about her absence so that they would not come to her assistance. And Kath, you and I talked about that. You know, if she believed her husband were killing her, why not go live with relatives or crash at a friend's house? And people offered. I want to say the teacher offered. Was the, te- the, te- the teacher offered, but her husband's sister also offered. Oh, that's right. So and she turned them down every time. Yeah. And so there's no actual explanation for why she turned them down. The defense maintained that Julie had not been prevented in any way from seeking help and that ethylene glycol is a fairly slow acting poison. So the defense contended that Julie's failure to seek help was more consistent with suicide than murder. Then they brought to the stand a psychiatrist, an expert witness, Dr. Herzl Spiro. He conducted what he called a psychological autopsy based on gathering information about Julie's past mental health treatment and family history of depression. He concluded that she had taken her own life. Mark never took the stand in his own defense. On February 22nd, 2008, After 30 hours of deliberation, the jury returned with its verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. Before sentencing, public defender Craig Albee read a letter submitted by Mark and Julie's sons, David and Douglas. What a nightmare. I can't imagine. Their mother's taken, now their father's taken. The letter that was submitted said their dad was innocent and asked that Mark be eligible for parole as soon as possible. The judge sentenced Mark Jensen to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Four months after his conviction, Mark Jensen's attorneys appealed the decision, insisting that Julie's handwritten letter and statements to the police that Mark was going to kill her were erroneously admitted into evidence. So here we go with another round of nightmarish appeals. Take it from there, Kathy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kath. You are a lawyer. It's true. (laughs) So two years after Mark's conviction, the appeal was heard. The court now said, "Um, yeah, those should never have been entered into evidence, but it was harmless error. Yeah. Hey, that was really bad, but, you know, not so bad. The court said there was so much evidence supporting the guilty verdict. It didn't matter if the letter was there or not and it affirmed Mark Jensen's conviction. 
Mark Jensen, of course, appealed this ruling. 13 years after Mark's conviction, so we are now in 2021, the Wisconsin Supreme Court took it up and said, that's not harmless error. Basically, a letter from the grave detailing that her husband is the murderer, no way is harmless error. Right. So the Supreme Court ordered that Mark's conviction be vacated and that the state release him within 90 days. Oh. Until the prosecution immediately refiled and he stayed in jail. This time, $1.3 million bail. So now, as Kathy said, the motions to exclude the letters and statements begin again. Right. All over again. Here we go. Back at the trial court now with these motions, the trial judge says, no, the letter and statements are admissible. So the prosecution says, hey, judge, if it's admissible, can't we just let the conviction stay? Right. (laughs) And the judge was like, sure. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's keep him in jail. That'll save time. And again, it was appealed. Yeah. And of course, the defense is like, you can't do that. (laughs) Exactly. Which the court of appeal agreed with. Exactly. They said that the trial judge could not ignore what the Wisconsin Supreme Court said. So let's start this over. Yeah. The Supreme Court was like, vacate the conviction. And the trial court was like, no, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we have a better idea. Exactly. So we're going to go with that. We're just going to let it be. We're just going to let him stay in jail. (laughs) And then we can all go do stuff. (laughs) So here we are. Mark Jensen gets a brand new trial that starts January 11th, 2023, just like a couple weeks before our recording, and 24 years after Julie died. Once again, prosecutors contended that Mark killed Julie because he wanted to continue his affair, and the defense, of course, argued Julie took her own life. I never understand in all of these cases why anybody in their right mind would think divorce, death. No, let's kill her. Right. I don't <laughs> right, right, that. right. I promise it's not simpler. I promise. Yes, exactly. Say no to murder. I like that. Maybe we should make t-shirts. Say no to murder. We absolutely will. <laughs> Look for it on sale at our brand new merch page. Exactly. <laughs> In her opening statements, prosecutor Carly McNeil said the evidence would show that Mark Jensen engaged in a years long campaign of harassment to degrade his wife, Julie, for cheating on him before poisoning and suffocating her to death so that he could marry his mistress. So public defender Mackenzie Renner said in opening statements, and I love this. Mark Jensen may be a jerk and a bad husband, but he's not a murderer. (laughs) You know, we should actually find out how many people actually said that at trial about their client and how many actually were murderers, because I'm guessing it's going to be 100 percent. Oh, I bet that's a very high percentage of people who tell the truth about their clients because the jury sees through it. So it's like if your client's a jerk, you got to kind of say so. Anyway, the public defender called Julie an unreliable narrator who told conflicting stories to different people about her husband as well as their relationship. So the prosecution began their case like they did in the trial 15 years prior with Julie's neighbor, Ted Voigt. However, he was not there in person. So the jury watched nearly three hours of his video in the original trial. Remember, in the original trial, Julie's letter was allowed to be admitted into evidence, which is something that Mr. Voigt spoke about because he was the person to whom Julie gave the letter. Because it was not admissible at this trial, that portion of the recording was deleted, so the new jury never saw it. Two neighbors, Ted Voigt's wife, Margaret, and Carrie Ashley, testified that they saw garbage bags of Julie's belongings outside the Jensen home on the curb the day after she died. Mrs. Voigt also testified that she first saw Mark Jensen's mistress, Kelly, who later became his wife, moving into the Jensen home two weeks after Julie's death. 
So, Kathy, interestingly, Mark and Julie's son, David, he was the oldest boy who's now 33 years old and has a Ph.D. Wow. Was called as a witness. When the prosecution asked David about his memories of Kelly, who, when she moved in, of course, was the girlfriend of his father, he said he had no memory of Kelly at all. There were pictures of them at a birthday party after that. He did not remember her being there. He did not remember her moving into the house. He did not remember anything of her for several months. And it was a while before he realized that that was his dad's girlfriend who he was then going to marry. That's incredible. It just shows how shut down you are. This poor boy was just shut down. Yeah, absolutely. But I understand that, that he shut it out, especially because Eric Shore, remember, this was the friend who testified about David telling him his mom was super sick, but his dad wouldn't take her to the hospital. Right. David said on the stand that he does not remember having that conversation with Eric Shore, but he said, Eric was my best friend, so I'm sure he's telling the truth. Now, at this 2023 retrial, Eric actually did testify once again. He talked about what David had told him and once again mimicked the breathing. This time, the prosecution also brought up Eric's mother to the stand so that she could back up Eric's account all these years later of what Eric told her when he came home from school, because Eric was very upset about this. And she was also able to put a very precise date on the boy's conversation, which was the day Julie Jensen died. And I'm sure they're looking at this, the prosecution going, okay, we have an eight-year-old. And even though he's 33 now on the stand, you know, meaning David's friend, he looks credible now, but he was eight. How keen are his observations? You know what? Let's put the mom on to back him up. So we talked about the porn at the 2008 trial. It is back again. Mm -hmm. So the state actually presented evidence at this trial that showed that Mark Jensen repeatedly placed pornographic photos around the house for Julie to find. And that Mark knew Julie believed her former lover was planting them. Mark denied knowing the origin of the pornographic photos, but he told Detective Ratzberg that Mark began saving the photos and using them to upset Julie when something would happen that caused him to get pissed off. So he admitted this to the detective, but it didn't come out the first time in trial? Correct. Oh, wow. Detective Ratzberg testified that Mark explained that sometimes Mark would leave the photos out for Julie to find. Other times he would bring them out, show them to Julie and tell her he found these in the shed. So bizarre. Detective Ratzberg also testified that Mark admitted that their marriage was never the same after Julie's affair. According to Court TV, the defense began with four witnesses whose testimony was clearly intended to undermine the credibility of the jailhouse snitches who testified against Mark. So these are people from the jail basically impugning the prosecution's jail witnesses. Anyway, his lawyers also called two medical professionals to testify as to Julie's state of mind as part of the defense strategy to show why she took her life. However, on cross-examination, both witnesses had to admit that Julie denied being suicidal, but added that people may struggle to admit such feelings. The prosecutor painted Mark as a gaslighting narcissist. So, Kath, these trials are 15 years apart, and the same prosecutor did both. And basically, when he left the first time he was being interviewed, and he's like, and if this guy has to have another trial, I'll be there too. So for the second trial, although he was not working for the district attorney's office at the time, he came back and got court approval to be a special prosecutor in the case. And he was probably dying to use the term gaslighting narcissist. Oh, yeah. He's probably like, we didn't have gaslighting in 2008. <laughs> so I'm going to use that word a lot. <laughs> he probably worked on that for a long time. Right. <laughs> so Kelly, who was married to Mark, but now at the time of the 2023 trial is divorced, was called to the stand. 
She testified that after she and Mark married, he asked prying questions about her prior paramours, including questions about their junk and kept notes on it and drawings, which is weird. I think he needs to have a deep conversation with himself (laughs) and actually figure out what's going on. I don't know. But anyway, it also came out when she was on the stand that Mark began writing a manuscript when he was in prison. He couldn't make bail the second time around. He starts writing a manuscript to tell his side of the story. And he and Kelly talked about how they were going to use the money from the sale to start a new life together somewhere. I think Kevin Bacon should play him in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not a bad idea. (laughs) Mark Jensen's family pastor, Marvin Oakler, testified on video that Jensen was distraught and upset over his wife's death. Oakler said he felt Jensen grieved appropriately at her visitation and funeral and pointed out that everybody grieves differently. The defense also called Ed Klug's former assistant in order to refute his testimony about the conversation that he and Mark had about wanting their wives dead. His former assistant basically said, look, Ed Klug, he's untruthful. He's an attention seeker and basically completely impugned his credibility. Lastly, The defense called their own forensic pathologist, Dr. Lindsay Thomas, to dispute the state's theory of Julie Jensen's cause and manner of death. Dr. Thomas testified the evidence was inconclusive as to the manner, but indicated there was a lot of evidence that supported suicide. Thomas also disagreed with the state that the evidence suggested homicidal suffocation. She testified that Julie may have died from her face being suffocated by a pillow but she did not have injuries Thomas would expect to see on other parts of her body if someone had pinned her down. Although the jurors in the 2008 trial took 30 hours to reach a verdict, this jury of six men and six women deliberated for six and a half hours over two days before reaching its verdict. Guilty. This case is one of the longest running cases in Wisconsin history, and it's finally now reaching its end. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for April of 2023, which we will make sure to put out on our social media. And because the offense occurred in 1998, the judge has the option of making Mark Jensen eligible for parole in 20 years. And at this time, he would have already served 15 of them. Or the judge could sentence Mark to life without the possibility of parole. The day before the verdict, Julie's brother, Larry Griffin, shared photos of her with the media and called his sister a victim of domestic violence. He said he never doubted that his former brother-in-law was responsible for his sister's death. He said, we are following through on Julie's words, desperate words that she wrote on November 21st, 1998. If anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you in Chattanooga, March 3rd through 5th. Go to literaryinc.co to find out about tickets, shows, times, all of that. We are doing a Q&A session on Friday and Saturday, and on Sunday, we are recording our podcast live. Which we've never done. Those of you who love tattoos, you're going to love this convention. Absolutely. And those of you who love Harry Potter, you're going to love the convention. And if you love us, come by because we will have a booth with giveaways and we will have t-shirts and shot glasses for sale. (laughs) (laughs) At the low, low price of please support us. Right. (laughs)
If you aren't following us on our social medias, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Killer Destinations Pod on Kathy's favorite social media, TikTok. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.